From our nation's capital, this is Naps Chat. I'm gonna stand right down and write myself a letter And make believe it came from you Welcome to this week's episode of Naps Chat. I'm Bob Levy, the Director of Legislative and Political Affairs for the National Association of Postal Supervisors. In the wake of the enactment of the Postal Reform Act, members of the mailing community have raised alarm about the recent increase in postage, 6.5% for first-class mail and 8.5% for package services, which went to effect this summer. They argued that the Postal Service did not need the increased revenue since the reform bill provided significant financial relief. The Postal Regulatory Commission concluded otherwise, that it was within the Postal Service's authority to raise rates. Specifically, the increase is consistent with the current law and the Postal Regulatory Commission's rate adjustment system. It is important to note that despite the increase in rates, the cost of providing mail service and the price increase charged by postal competitors increased by far more than the Postal Service's rate increase. In fact, the recently released producer price index, as calculated by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, reported that the increase in providing courier, messenger, and mail services over the past year increased by 11.5%. If we dig a bit deeper, the cost of providing airmail and package delivery services, excluding the Postal Service, rose by 16.3%. That is, companies such as UPS and FedEx raised their rates 20% more than the Postal Service did for its package and airmail services. Furthermore, private sector messenger and couriers had cost increases that were 10.5% more than the previous year. That is a whopping 62% more than the USPS. Guess what? The USPS is still a bargain. Now, on to this week's topic. Last week, our nation commemorated the 21st anniversary of the devastating terrorist attack on our country, resulting in the death of 2,997 victims. As the postal community knows, about one month later, in October 2001, anonymous letters containing deadly anthrax spores began entering postal facilities destined for media outlets and congressional offices. There were five recorded deaths and 17 infections attributed to the weaponization of the U.S. mail. It exposed our most trusted and treasured national institution, the United States Postal Service, to a crisis for which it was not built. With me today is the engineer who helped the Postal Service reconstitute itself, and I would suggest prepare it to be in the forefront of the war against COVID-19. I am delighted to have, as this week's NAPS Chat guest, Thomas Day, former United States Postal Service Senior Vice President for Government Relations. Tom is currently a consultant in the private sector, still doing postal work, in fact. He worked for over 30 years in the Postal Service, beginning in 1984. Prior coming to the Postal Service, Tom served with distinction in the United States Army, rising to the rank of captain. Welcome to NAPS Chat, Tom. Thank you, Bob. Good to be here. Tom, let's turn the calendar back to October 2001. What was your position at that time with the Postal Service, 
And how was the Postal Service and you alerted that anthrax invaded our mail stream? Uh, well, at that time, I was the uh, vice president of engineering, actually relatively new to the job. I had just uh, I'd started temporarily in November of uh, 2000 and then officially got the job in the spring of 2001. So I wasn't too long into the position and was serving with a brand new postmaster general uh, in Jack Potter, who had picked me to be in the job. And how did you first find out that anthrax had invaded the system? Uh, interestingly enough, there was uh, a lot going on at that time. Obviously, we had come out of uh, the 9-11 event, a day I'll never forget. I remember standing at the back of the uh, Board of Governors room meeting and actually seeing, unfortunately, the uh, third plane crash into the uh, Pentagon. So we were attuned to that, but we had gone forward and had the uh, uh, Postal Forum in Denver, Colorado. Now, some events had taken place earlier than that down in Florida at American media, but it wasn't very clear exactly how that had happened, but we knew there was an event and um, there was an investigation to find out. There was suspicion about it might've come through the mail. Uh, and unfortunately a gentleman down there in American media had passed away. But then at the postal forum itself out in Denver, Colorado, we got the word uh, that letters had been received in Congress specifically to Senator Daschle. Jack, uh, got together the senior executive team out there uh, to figure out what were the next steps um, that we needed to do to deal with the situation. Jack was, as you said, you were new to the position. Jack was only postmaster general for four months because he was uh, hired by the Board of Governors and promoted by the Board of Governors back in June 2001. But he had a lot of experience in postal operations. How do you feel that his experience in postal operations informed his judgment and the initial response by the Postal Service to the uh, attack on the mail system? Yeah, I mean, Jack, it's interesting. Jack and I have a lot of similarities, uh, although I, I admit I'm not up to his standard. He's, uh, he's quite a man. But uh, Jack and I were both from New York. We were both sons of former postal employees. So we had the postal blood in us. So, yes, he had extensive understanding of postal operations. So it, it really did help immensely to understand uh, how the network functions and where the impacts might occur with uh, this type of uh, unfortunate attack on the system. Uh, so yeah, his, his experience was, uh, was, was critical. And, and even though he had just been promoted to the Postmaster General, prior to that, he'd been the COO. So he was he was right at the top of the organization for several years, understood how the organization worked, understood the operations, and uh, I give him credit. I think he had a pretty good team around him as well that he, he had put in place. Now, Tom, you were trained as an engineer. In fact, your degree in engineering was from West Point, the United States Military Academy. Now, engineers are problem solvers. How did you feel about the mail being weaponized and as an engineer, what did you think the first step ought to be? It's interesting to clarify. Yes, I do have a degree in engineering. I will admit I made a particular choice. I'm a systems engineer. That's the kind of studies I did at uh, West Point, uh, systems engineering. Kind of realized I wasn't going to be a great mechanical or electrical engineer, but I was real good at systems engineering. And interestingly enough, uh, when I got my master's degree at Stanford, even though it was in business, I concentrated again on uh, aspects around operations and systems engineering. And I think that was critical. What 
that really brings to the table as an engineer, and in this case, a systems engineer, is just what that phrase says, understanding how the entire system works. What I found is I, I ran into a lot of technical experts, dealt with them for several years. They were absolutely brilliant in the specific topic that they had studied and participated in. But understanding how all the different pieces fit together and then put on top of that, how do you fit that into the operational world of how a postal network operates, that was unique. And I think, to tell you the truth, what really helped me succeed in getting this uh, successful accomplishment, uh, ultimately, it did take a couple of years to really get it closed out, but there was a fantastic staff uh, at the engineering department uh, at the US Postal Service. Uh, a great group of people who busted their rear ends to get things done. And I would note, just as a side note to the whole story, during that time frame from 2001, and it took us a couple of years to get the whole thing finished, 2003, 2004, not only did we effectively deal with anthrax, but if you'll recall, we also successfully implemented a whole new series of technologies that helped us to improve service and reduce costs. Advanced flat sorters, advanced uh, parcel sorting machines, all of that still got done while we were also dealing with the anthrax situation. I want to come back because I think you sell yourself short on not knowing the t uh, being a systems engineer rather than the quote unquote mechanical, electrical, or chemical engineer. Because I remember sitting through a briefing that you conducted sometime after the anthrax attack where you were explaining something known as polymerase chain reaction, a process that would be used to identify anthrax in the mail. I mean, just an aside, who would know that we all know that polymerase chain reaction, or also known as PCR, is presently used to detect COVID, but we'll get to COVID in a minute. Now, PCR is highly complex, yet you were able to explain its application to the mail to employee groups, Capitol Hill, and the administration. I know you say you're not a technical guy from that perspective, but how did you accomplish that? Um, I think if there's a gift that I was born with, I am a, a fairly quick learner. And I think here's the most important thing I learned. And I actually, I think the thing that sharpened my skills on this was when I came into the Postal Service in uh, 1984. I remember coming in brand new to the Postal Service, even though I was the son, actually second generation. My grandfather and father both worked for the Postal Service. So I'm from a postal family. So I knew some of the terminology, but I'll tell you, working in the Postal Service, there's just unique terms and phrases. And people would throw them at me and I just had to ask, I said, well, what do you mean by that? What, what does that mean? Because it's a pure postal term. And I learned it through the years, but it taught me a lesson don't confuse people with technical terminology. You have to explain things and put it in common language uh, that can be understood. And, and that's what I applied as I dealt with the entire anthrax situation, as I spoke to employee groups, as I spoke even to our own staff, as I spoke to public groups, to the unions, to the Congress, whoever. You know, I see it today even with the COVID. People get too technical in their terminology. Keep it simple, keep it understandable, know who your audience is. Now that's not to downplay them as they're stupid, but keep it as simple as you can. And then if you need to raise it up some levels because they do understand, fine, do that. 
But what it means is you have to know what you're talking about. So again, I think if there's something I was born with, thank God, was a bit of quick learning skills. Well, interestingly, because of your success in particularly educating members of the Senate and members of the House in protecting themselves from anthrax in the mail, you became senior vice president of government relations because you know how to talk with those folks. Yes, I must say. I mean, Jack uh, surprised me a bit when he asked me to take the job. Uh, As you know, back then we were going through about 10 years as we did another time around of getting uh, legislative reform. And I know you were deeply involved with that as well. So yes, uh, Jack had a, a high level of confidence as did the board that I'd built a very good reputation over on the Hill in the House and Senate. And, you know, most importantly, as you find in dealing with the House and the Senate, not only building a reputation with the members themselves, but with the staff. I had gone over there repeatedly to brief all kinds of people on what we had uh, done, why we were doing it, what we were planning to do. I had testified before the House and Senate, various committees. So it had gone very well. I I will note, despite that experience and that reputation, um, dealing with the Hill on uh, legislative reform for the Postal Service is a little different than trying to explain to them how to deal with the anthrax situation. But you were successful in getting a nominal appropriation for the deployment of anthrax technology, because I recall that was a significant victory for the Postal Service at that time. And that's what I'd like to talk about. Sure. You had, as the chairman of the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee was Joe Lieberman, an independent from Connecticut. And you had as chairman of the Oversight and Reform Committee, Dan Burton of Indiana, And John McHugh chaired the House Postal Subcommittee. You had George W. Bush, President George W. Bush, in the White House. Could you talk about the legislative strategy employed to secure funding for the anthrax uh, technology that needed to be deployed? Yes. It it really began with Jack. Let me give him full credit. Jack had done some uh, very good initial discussions. and, And I'll just note in terms of Jack's leadership style. And, and I, I'm a bit biased, but I, I think he probably is the finest postmaster general we've had. He really accomplished wonderful things in some very difficult times. God knows, he actually lived through a time and led us through a time when uh, we actually showed a profit one year and uh, uh, had fantastic service and customer service. So it was a great time for the Postal Service. And again, a, a great leadership uh, from Jack really was a, a key to that. But um, Jack laid down the groundwork. He had the discussion with the key White House staff. I'm not sure he actually spoke to the president himself. He might have, but I know he's at least speaking with chief of staff uh, and deputy chief of staff for, uh, for domestic affairs. But they got the agreement that, yes, this was an unusual circumstance, not something the Postal Service could just fund on its own. So then it got handed to me, which was fine. Um, what are the potential potential technical solutions that could deal with this short-term and long-term, and then how much will it cost? I I will tell you again, full credit to my staff at engineering. I believe that occurred somewhere in the November of 2001 timeframe where we got the go-ahead. By March of 2002, we had completed a fully documented assessment of the risks, assessment of available technologies, and a proposed solution of how we would do it along with cost estimates. And as I recall, I think it originally was estimated a a request of upwards of $3 billion. 
we wound up doing it for about a total of 2.3 billion. And so, yeah, we, we put all of that together and I spent a lot of time over on the Hill explaining it principally to staff. I mean, uh, you know, uh, full members of the House and Senate, uh, they can't get too deep into some of that stuff, but they do have intelligent and trustworthy staff. So we briefed them. And then occasionally we did brief uh, directly to the members themselves. And um, we were successful. We, we put together a good report, a good request, and uh, we executed. And I, I would say proudly uh, what we had put in the plan and what they approved and the funding that came to us, we spent it. We got it done, I would say, on time and within budget. As I recall, I think out of the $2.3 billion, there were a couple of hundred thousand left over at the end. So a government project done on time that met its <laughs> uh, criteria and didn't spend all the money. A major concern amongst the postal employees was the protection of their safety and their health. And I do recall uh, that Brentwood facility in the District of Columbia, as well as Trenton, New Jersey's facility, was significantly impacted by uh, anthrax. And we lost a number of postal employees because of anthrax. Could you tell me a little bit about protecting the health and safety of postal employees during this period of time? Sure, and, and to be very specific, let, let's recognize, unfortunately, the two employees who died uh, from that event, uh, Kersine and Morris, for which the facility was renamed. Uh, those two gentlemen were working at that time, the Brentwood facility, uh, were exposed to anthrax and passed away. Uh, the facility is now named for them. Those were the two deaths within the Postal Service. Several other postal employees did get sick. Uh, the decision was made to get Washington back up first and running. Uh, it was the biggest facility and the highest level of contamination we found. So we worked on that first. So again, we had to go out and figure out what was the proper technology. So that was again, part of the plan. We had to get a budget to uh, decontaminate both of those facilities as well as fully renovate. So that was included in the 2.3 billion. And we spent a lot of time working on that, but we were successful in both places. I spent a lot of time with the employees and their union representatives. I held uh, multiple meetings, multiple public meetings as well, uh, because the public living in the immediate vicinity around those facilities uh, were very, very concerned about what we were doing and would it be safe. So I did public hearings both in Washington as well as uh, in Trent, New Jersey. In fact, I testified in public uh, events before both the DC City Council as well as the um, Hamilton Township. I just remembered uh, Hamilton Township was the host uh, location of the Trenton facility. But I spent a lot of time talking with employees. And it, I think if there's anything in my background, it's I am a third generation postal employee. Both of my, my grandfather and father were craft uh, employees. They were not management. Um, and in fact, my uh, father had been a uh, union shop steward for the APWU. So I, I was attuned to the union. I know what it meant. I can remember my father going on strike back in the late 60s uh, when he wasn't sure he'd ever get his job back. My um, father was walking that picket line outside of the general post office in Manhattan also. Well, my grandfather was working at the general post office in Manhattan. My father worked as the shop steward at the local post office in Port Washington. And as a side note, 
one of the gentlemen who was key in that strike, his, his family was good friends. I uh, uh, went to school with Vinny Sombrato Jr. Ah. And, and lived about a mile away from Vince Sombrato. And in later years, my son and uh, Vince Sombrato's grandson were classmates in preschool together. I remember standing, <laughs> standing at a preschool graduation talking to Vince Sombrato, and he kind of knew who I was. And at the time, I was the district manager for Triborough District. And, and it was a funny look. It, I went up and introduced myself again. He says, he understood who I was. And he says, what are you doing now? And I told him, I'm the district manager uh, for the Postal Service in Triborough. But I had a great relationship with the NALC, with the other unions as well. Uh, but when they knew that I knew Vince <laughs> personally, helped. yeah, it definitely helped. But he, he was a very nice gentleman um, and I'd known him for years. But yeah, we, we went through all of that. So I, I've been attuned to that. Um, I, I've never been in a union myself, but I grew up in a union family. And I know how important it is to communicate it. Boy, is it something that management forgets all too often. Just talk to people. Let them know what you're thinking about doing. Get their thoughts. Don't surprise them. They shouldn't read about what you're doing in the newspapers or now through social media. Mm -hmm. They ought to be part of the discussion. Now, does that mean you're going to agree on everything? No. Does that mean you're going to do exactly what they want? No, but it's communication. And so we stress that. And I'll tell you, I had many, many meetings with employees. I understood their sensitivity. And something I learned at West Point, something I learned in the military, uh, leadership by example, leadership by getting out front. Uh, I remember one of the things we definitely learned as officers in the Army, uh, when it's time to feed the troops or it's time to get the troops to bed, the last person to eat and the last person to go to bed is the leader. You set the example. And that's what I did. I remember when we finally got Kersine Morris facility cleaned up, and ready to go back in, the employees were still, how do we know this is safe? Well, I went on a tour without any mask, without anything on, and went through that building. Because if I'm going to ask employees to go back there and work unprotected, then I damn well better be willing to do the same thing myself. And that night I went home with my kids. And actually later, I took my kids on a tour as well. Wow. I wanted everyone to understand I wasn't just saying it was safe. I was going to live it. And the other thing that made Trent, Trenton a bit easier for me is I previously had been the director of city operations at Trenton, and I knew the uh, union leadership at that facility because I'd worked with them for several years. So we, we built that same level of trust. Now, that's not to mean they had a, I took it for granted with them. No, I didn't. And I went through the same process with them, but I walked in that door with an understanding with them because they had worked with me for several years and and knew that I was the type of person that you you could, you know, trust what I said. I wasn't going to lie to you. If I couldn't tell you something, I'd tell you. I couldn't tell you. But I wasn't going to tell you a mistruth in any way. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, lessons were learned from the Postal Service's 2001 experience with anthrax and its application to this COVID-19 pandemic. So I, I'm curious, what are the takeaways in terms of emergency preparedness do you think that the Postal Service learned in 2001 and its application to the COVID-19 pandemic? I think one of the things we definitely learned is flexibility. We had to react quickly 
but at the same time, you couldn't overreact. It's one of the things I, I see today. Sometimes things get too far to one extreme or the other, doing too much or too little. Finding that acceptable middle ground as you're trying to understand how things work, being honest with people to understand what the risks are and some of the basic things you can do to protect yourself. Again, uh, communications, uh, besides dealing with the internal aspect, back in those days, uh, they kind of, well, more than kind of, I became the spokesperson on the anthrax issue. And I was on all the networks, uh, you name it, uh, TV, radio, wasn't as much social media back then. But getting out and answering questions, again, keeping it simple, putting it in language that people can understand, not overstating or understating. You know, it, when someone would ask, can you guarantee that I'm safe? I was honest. It, no, you can't. Uh, I remember one time testifying at a uh, at a house hearing, and, and I won't say, and I don't want to remember the name of the member, but someone was trying to say, can you give me 100% certainty that there are no anthrax items in the Kersine Morris building? And he's like, 100%. And, and I was very blunt. I says, no, there's, there's nothing in science where I can give you 100%. I says, but let me just make a point. I can't tell you with 100% certainty that there is an anthrax on the microphone in front of your face right now. Mm. That, that kind of got his attention. Wow. Now, it's, well, yeah, yeah, let me, it's clear from the documents prepared by the Senate panel, the Department of Defense, and the Postal Service that the Postal Service is an integral part of the essential national infrastructure. And one of the elements of the U.S.'s emergency planning was the national postal model, which was initiated with a very modest investment. It was used to create a model for the distribution of medicine in the event of bioterrorism. Do you think that model was applied appropriately regarding the distribution of COVID-19 antigen tests? Um, to be honest, I, I was not obviously involved with that in any way, and I, I don't know exactly how they did it. But I've got to assume they did. Uh, I mean, the, the information was there. Uh, but you are correct, as we were coming out of the uh, anthrax event, and I remember going to... Um, Tom Ridge at the time was the Secretary of Homeland Security, and he held a uh, a session at the National National War College. And um, I remember sitting in. I was the USPS representative to that. And again, I was I was amazed. The technical experts from other agencies got too much into their little thing, whereas I was always focused on the bigger issue. And I remember making a couple of key points, and Tom Ridge was. Uh, kind of looking at me like, how does the postal guy know this? And my technical <laughs> experts don't. But I, it was interesting. I got into a personal conversation one-on-one -on -one with him. We both went into the restroom. And he kind of alluded to that. He's like, uh, you have a good general understanding of how this needs to work. And I, I said, yes, uh, you learn from experience, but you need to keep it at a higher level. Technical experts can help you with those things, but they're, they're not always good at uh, figuring out how the system works. And so, uh, yes, uh, there was a recognition that the Postal Service had uh, unfortunately uh, been the victim of uh, the weaponization of its system, but we had dealt with it well. We had organized it well. We had come up with good solutions. And so, and several times thereafter, I had been called back specifically to the National Security Council, none of which I can talk about, uh, on a reference of, of several other issues. So I, I think it was recognized. 
And I think some of the systems we put in place, you know, for example, if there ever was a wide scale anthrax, how would you deal with that? How would you get the, uh, the medications out there uh, in a proper manner? And initially they were talking about, oh, it's got to be controlled. It's uh, got to be, it's high, you know, it's pharmaceutical. So that, and, and again, this is where the, the reality set in is like, no, um, you can't make people go to the doctor. You can't do the, the network. The logistics won't support that. And the postal service was clearly viewed as the way to quickly distribute emergency medications in large quantities to vast numbers of people in geographic areas. So yes, that's exactly what that plan had put together. And I must assume, uh, may not be correct, that that's the, the plan they used for the distribution uh, for COVID in this case, not for uh, medicine to treat it, but rather test kits to detect its presence. So yeah. Tom, I want to thank you for being our guest on NAPS Chat. That's, this has been Thomas Day, former Senior Vice President for Government Relations at the Postal Service. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Bob. Take care. And I want to thank NAPS Chat listeners for logging on. If you enjoy NAPS Chat, please leave us a positive review in the Apple Podcast Store. In the meantime, stay safe and stay healthy. I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter.